Today, I, I want you to imagine you're not hearing, imagine you're not hearing a sermon today. You're not here to hear a guy impress you with his volume or his eloquence of language. Imagine we're just sitting across from each other. Maybe we're at a coffee shop or maybe we're just in your living room and um, we're talking about some very, what I would say, incredibly important issues about what it means to be a Christian. To me, this couldn't be, this topic in Luke 14 is a discussion of immensely important implications. How you see your life, how you live your life, how you view yourself in light of God and in light of other people. This whole passage, I think, is, uh, it's, it's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, I have to be honest with you. But before we uh, enter there, I just want to kind of begin by getting us thinking in a direction I think Luke 14 wants us to think. How many of you last Sunday caught a glimpse of the American Music Awards? Anybody? Raise your hand. You don't have to be embarrassed about it. One person. Anybody else over here? The American Music Awards is, uh, was on last Sunday night. It's an award show of the best musicians or the top-selling music artists. And really what it is... It's a congratulation fest. People of like minds congratulating each other, but it was really kind of embarrassing. Actually, a lot of times I like watching award shows because it's like watching a train wreck. It's really embarrassing. Our culture is really embarrassing and very juvenile. We live in a very juvenile country, to be honest with you. Celebrity, fame, it's all some people are desperate for, and really the American Music Awards is just a bunch of people wanting to say, I had my 15 minutes of fame, I was on TV, or I, was, I, I made fun of the new president, ha, ha, ha. You know, it's, it's kind of embarrassing, actually. You know, I was, as I was thinking about it, you know, I, there's a, it's going to resonate with, with, with what we're going to talk about. And I wrote down this question, why will people do such things? silly things just for 15 minutes of fame? Why do people want glory? Why do people want to be liked so badly on social media? Why? I, I wrote this question out, and I put it on this notebook paper, and I was sitting at breakfast with Jared, and I said, Jared, answer this, and I slid it over to him. And he took a few minutes, and then he wrote the answer down, and he slid it back to me. And here was his answer. He's, here's his answer. Why do people want glory? He said it's the first promise of a garden where Satan said, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. And as I thought about that, I'm thinking, ah, it's kind of a simple answer. But as I meditated more on it, more realize this is what drives almost every decision we make. We want to be somebody. We want to be noticed. We want to be almost like God. We want His glory. I want you to think Chris Weeks is amazing and one of the best people you ever met. And you want people to think the same thing about you. We are in this, what I would call this, Hunt for glory. And actually today, Luke 14 is all about that. As you dig deeper, the whole thing is pointing towards this need we have to be first, to be best, to have status, 
to have significance. It's incredible. But there's a cost to it. And so today, the, the title is The Cost of Glory. Wanting to be somebody. Maybe the best. So if you could open up the Luke 14, there's a lot of different, what I would say, little narrative stories woven within this, but you'll see they're all kind of directed towards the same theme, this idea of significance, glory, status, wanting to be the best. It begins in verse 1 of Luke 14, and I'm just going to read it and then we'll walk through it. It says, on Sabbath, one Sabbath, Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching him carefully, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away, and he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply. They could not, when some version says they did not want to reply. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Verse 12, he said also to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Verse 15 you'll see these same themes. When one of those who reclined at the table heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. 25 to 27, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. How do all of these things fit, fit together? I believe this is an issue. The story is all about wanting glory and how you get it. Let's begin with the opening story. The opening story sets the stage for the rest of the discussions. It's a story that is um, on the Sabbath. Actually, last week we talked about the Sabbath. And you could say, oh, Jesus is dealing with the Sabbath issues again, when really he's not. He's really not. He's dealing with issues of honor, being in the in-group, and how you procure blessing for yourself. How you get glory. It's what he's talking about. I'll show you. Here's the setting. Verse 1, on Sabbath, when he went to dine in the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. So he goes to the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. This isn't just any Pharisee. This is one of the head Pharisees. This is one of the most important men of the Jewish community. NIV says the leader of the Pharisees. They don't know who it is. Could be uh, one of the Sanhedrin. Whoever, this guy is a ruler. He's very important. So he's going to a very important meal. One scholar writes, meals with rulers in Judaism were often used to advertise and reinforce my position in social hierarchy. If you get invited and you get to sit at the table with the ruler of the Pharisees, you're in. You're somebody. 
How do we know this? Because of verse 7. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 is relating to the story. Verse 7 says, Jesus told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed, what was he noticing? How they chose the places of honor. See, they came to the meal because they wanted honor. They wanted to sit in the right seat. They wanted to be seen as the right kind of person. And then if we go back to verse 1, it's also an occasion not just to be part of the in-group, but they were seeing if Jesus deserved to be, as it says in verse 1, they dined at the ruler of the house of the Pharisees and they were watching him carefully. So they were scrutinizing him to see if he is their kind or not. So it's a very important meal. However, somebody, an uninvited guest, comes in. Verse 2. It's a man with dropsy. What is dropsy? The uh, medical language today calls it edema. Basically, it's, it's when your body retains fluids. And you're basically, as reading up on it, it says when your vessels start leaking fluids, and so your skin starts getting thick, like a balloon. It's embarrassing. Actually, uh, I was reading one report that said this condition is terrible because your bodies retain salt. When your body retains salt, you always feel thirsty. So because you're always thirsty, you're always drinking, and the more you drink, the more your body fills with fluids. It's dropsy. It's a terrible condition. This man was considered, and later on Jesus is going to say this, he was considered poor, unwelcome, not wanted. Some scholars said even unclean because his body was sort of unclean, disfigured. He was considered, ah, stay away, outcast. Second thing we can say about this, this is not a guy you want to bring in your good company. He doesn't bring honor to your group. And so what they would say is the kind of people you invite kind of reflects on you. And this isn't a guy you want around. But what's very interesting is another writer said this is also an illustration of the pride of the people that were there. Just like the old proverb, this one guy said the proverb is there's nothing as dry as a person with dropsy because you're thirsty, so you keep drinking, but you keep getting fuller of the water you're drinking, but you want more of what's killing you. In the same way, it's an illustration of what pride does you. The more I'm about me, my status, how important I am, the more I want. Dropsy's a metaphor to pride. That's why he was there. So it's a very strange situation if you don't believe that that's how the Bible talks about pride. 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, I don't want you to think about, be all puffed up, all swollen because you think you're better than other people. Pride is like dropsy. It swells you up. Ego-wise. So this is a very... It's a very, uh, what I'd say, strange situation. I, I once had a situation like this. I was a salesman in downtown Chicago. I just got out of college. I, I was 21, but I looked probably 15 years old. I was selling uh, large mailing systems in the downtown Chicago loop, and I would go into the high-rise buildings in the loop and go from office to office trying to sell systems. It's a terrible job. It's a cold-calling job. I hated it. One time I was on 55 Wacker. 55 Wacker is this big building right on Wacker where the, where the river goes in, in Chicago. 
and I was up about the middle of the building, probably 30th floor, and there was no name on this door. So I opened up the door, and I walked in, and I walked in a boardroom meeting of all these lawyers, lawyers with like $2,000 suits. And here I am, a 15-year-old guy with a suitcase and a trench coat going, hi, anybody want to buy a mailing system? And they looked at me, and they said, get that guy out of here, literally. And they had the guards of the building. Did you ever see Elf when Elf went into, he went up to the Empire State Building, they dragged him out, and they said, you are never allowed in here. That's what happened to me. Exactly, just like that. I was not welcome, little old me. I did not belong in that highfalutin meeting. Neither did the guy with dropsy. This is all about status. So what does Jesus do? Well, according to verse 3 and 4, he asked them a question. He said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And it says they said nothing. Cold-hearted people. Is it, what if your son fell in? He's, he's, he's bringing, what if your son fell in a well on the Sabbath? Or your ox fell in on the Sabbath? Your son is important, an ox, no big deal, but both of them, you would probably bring them out. So in the same way, I'm going to heal this guy. So we healed them, and they didn't say anything. Why didn't they say anything? One writer said, well, they probably didn't want to challenge his wisdom. How do you challenge his wisdom? Jesus is amazing. But here's just from reading and actually just imagining, here's why I don't think they responded to him. They didn't dare compromise their status at such an important meal. Let me illustrate. Imagine you are a high school teacher, or even better, you're a professor of liberal arts at an Ivy League school, and somebody walks into the meeting with all the professors there and goes, hey, aren't you guys excited that Trump won? How do you think the professors would respond to that? If you know anything about high school teachers, I bet you not many voted for Trump or professors at Ivy League schools. Let me put it like this. Let's say you're in the board meeting of the NRA and somebody walks in and said, I can't wait till Hillary wins. The NRA people would be like, what did you just say? Aren't you guys excited Hillary's going to win the election? The NRA guys would be like, what? They wouldn't agree to that because it threatens their standing in their eyes of their peers. They want to be liked. We all want to be liked. So even when you say politics, if I say Trump, a lot of you just don't say nothing. Because I don't want you to judge me. I don't want to be judged. That's why we don't pretty reveal who we elect. It's the same idea. I, these people were silent because they didn't want to respond to what Jesus said. Because if they got excited, they're around Pharisees that are angry. They don't want to compromise their status. This is about glory, honor, and status, and that's what verse 7 is all about. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So Jesus notices this is all about wanting to be honored, wanting to be important, wanting to be seen. We all want to be seen as important. To me, this is all about glory. What do I mean when I say glory? As, let's first define glory. Go to the next thing, the glory story. Let me define what I mean by glory. Glory is, it's, it's this idea of in and of myself, I have greatness. 
inside of me. I am great. I am significant. I'm not just significant, but I'm just better. I think we all down deep inside kind of believe this. I, if you really knew me, and some of us will say, no, if you really knew me, I'm a wicked sinner, but really you love yourself. Truth, that's what Jesus says. You know you do. Even those people who don't forgive themselves, it's a sign that they think highly of themselves, actually. Actually, when you can't forgive yourself, it's called reverse pride. I, I think I should be so important that when I fail, I'm not meeting up to who I think I am. It's actually pride. It's bizarre. And, and really, the other definition of glory is this idea of that I have inside of me internal weightiness, and then it, and then it comes out in external radiance. That's what glory means. Glory is the expression of value, is really what it is. It's the expression of value. And these people, when they sat in better seats, it expressed how important they were. I'm at the ruler's house. I'm invited. Just think how important I am. It's kind of like the AMA, the American Music Awards. Those who get to sit in the first three rows are the top celebrities. Could you imagine how important they feel that I got invited to sit in the first row? I'm not like those schmucks up on the balcony. I'm somebody. It's all about glory. You are somebody, and you want everybody to know it. There's two kinds of glory, however, and this is what the rest is going to talk about. There's two kinds of glory. There's what I'm going to call earthly glory, and this is the majority of the world lives in it. They live for earthly glory. And then there's going to be eternal glory. And that's what the Bible, the Bible implores you. Look, go for that. Strive for that. Glory isn't in of itself a bad thing to want, but you have to understand how you get it. The earthly glory, people think, is truly a product of myself. Human effort. I worked for it. I, me, myself and I, it's all about me. I am an autonomous person. I did this on my own. The talents, the looks, the success is all me. I did it all. And I want you to know it because I'm probably better than you. It's me. It's about me. I deserve the credit. The problem and the reality of this kind of glory, according to Luke 6.24, is this is it. It's all you got. It's temporal and it's fleeting. It goes by fast. That's why we call celebrityism 15 minutes of glory because especially if you're a lady, you don't, your beauty doesn't last long and Hollywood doesn't want you after the age of probably 25. It's fleeting. Luke 6, 24 talks about rich people and he said, well, guess what? They're just enjoying their glory now. That's all they get. That's why people are desperate. If they're living for earthly glory, they're always striving, working, competing. They get tired because they know this is all I got. Sort of like vacation. I can't believe Thursday's over. I couldn't wait to see my mom all week. I see my mom. It, man, it was like a blink of an eye. It's not fair. Did you ever say that about vacation? It's not fair. It goes too fast. 
Like, in, and when you got to leave, you're like, I hate, the, I hate vacation because it ends so fast. That's what glory, earthly glory is like. It goes so fast. Then you have eternal glory. It's a gift. It's a gift of God to those he loves. And the truth about eternal glory is you realize something. It's not about me, and it doesn't come from me. I am like moonlight. Uh, my light isn't self-generated. It's reflected. It's reflected from the original source. So basically, I am just shining to display the true source of light. That's how I've been designed. I want you to go to Philippians 3.21. This is an amazing verse. Because eternal glory isn't temporal. It's going to be eternal. We're eternal, not in, in our essence. We're eternal because God allows us to live forever. People said, well, we're eternal beings. Actually, our eternality comes from him. We live forever because he holds us together. And listen to what Philippians 3.21 says. This is an amazing verse. Starting in verse 20. Our citizenship, where we belong, that's the idea, where we really belong, is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to our, himself. So in other words, our glory is going to come from him. We are going to be like him. We're going to be like him. First John 3, 1. We will be like him as he is. So our glory isn't autonomous glory. It's not intrinsic glory. Our glory is reflective glory. He's going to share it with us, and we are going to reflect it back, and people are going to be in awe of us, not because of us, but because we look like the Savior. It's ama he's amazing. You probably didn't notice. Some of you are smart, but did you notice what the background of this is, the true light? It's the sun. The moon's light comes off the sun. I want you to go to Colossians. Look at Colossians 1. Colossians is one book to your right from Philippians, Colossians 1, verse 16 and 17. You just got to get your mind focused on this because this is what matters. For by him, meaning Jesus, by him, all things were created. If you stop right there, what do you have that you have done that didn't first come from him? According to that, all things were created by him. Things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible. That includes you, your talents, your gifts, your personality, your abilities. He gave them to you. He gave those to you. And then he uh, also is in charge of thrones, dominions, rulers, authority. That can include not just kings and princes, but demons angels and then verse 17 he's before all things that means he's of import he's precedent and, and in him in him all things hold together 
That means the only reason I exist right now is because he's holding me together. How could I take glory? How can I really think I am something? That's why Psalm 115 says, not to us, but to him be glory. So, that's the definition of glory. So how do we describe it? In other words, how do you tell, how can you tell which glory you are living in or striving for or holding on to? There's really two really easy ways to tell, and he's going to tell us two little stories, two little parables. Starting in verse 12, I'm sorry, starting in verse 8 of verse chapter 14. The first thing he's going to talk about is human success. How you view success will reveal which glory you're holding on to. And this is powerful. This is, to me, truthfully, if you live by this, I think this is intended to be not just an insight for practical living today, but I think this is, as one writer said, this is how God is going to describe to you the kind of person he values, the kind of person he lifts up. So verse 7, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, success. I want to be on top, climb the ladder. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you will both come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is how two different views of success. The verse, first view, the earthly success, is I go to the wedding party or I go to the important places and I push for the top position. I put myself out there. I win. I compete. I fight. I flex my muscles. I ridicule my opponents. I win. I do it my way. I make you look stupid and me look better. I mock. I tell better stories. I show my credentials. What we need to understand, according to this, in God's eyes, he doesn't, doesn't look on it too highly. Nor do other people. Verse 8, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited. I have bad news for you. There's always someone more distinguished than you. There's always someone better. There's always someone funnier smarter, wiser, better looking. My dad used to put it like this, homespun language. Actually, he'd tell me this when I'd play football because I was always short and I'd scared to death to go out there against big guys. He'd say it like this. He goes, Chris, always remember, there ain't a horse that can't be rode and there ain't a man that can't be thrown. So true. Are you always competing? Are you the kind of person, if I was to go to have a discussion with you, do you always have to have the last word? 
Sometimes I am, and I don't like that about myself. It's a sign of pride. Do you always have the biggest story? Do you always know more about, like, nutrition and diets and how to be a better person? Are you always the one who looks down on other people thinking they just don't meet up to you? If, if you are, you're going for probably earthly glory. There is eternal glory, and it starts in verse 10. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. There's some people say, well, in a way, this is a tactic to get earthly glory. But the point is, go to the lowest place and be satisfied there. Can you be satisfied in the lowest place? Can you be satisfied to be small? Francis Schaeffer once had this book called No Little People. That when you're a Christian, you start realizing God's economy. Jesus was, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he made himself nothing. He made himself little. And in God's eyes, there's no little people. In a sense, you just enjoy being there. You can't believe you're afforded another day to live. And then it says, most likely, someone will exalt you. And what's interesting is when you are exalted by other people, they will do the defending for you. You don't need to defend yourselves. I want you to go to 1 Peter 5, 4-6. This is, in a sense, for pastors. Because pastors, there's a lot of pastors that go into ministry for earthly glory. And they like to exalt themselves by their schooling doctorate, their title, their position, their knowledge, their eloquence. There's a lot of different reasons. And so Jesus, uh, Peter's writing to them in chapter 5, verse 4 through 6. Listen to what he says of 1 Peter 5, 4 through 6. When the chief shepherd appears, the chief, because he's the true pastor, he's the head of the church, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. When do we get glory? When he appears. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. God likes to... He likes to support those who, who don't promote themselves. He likes to support. Humility isn't, you probably heard this definition before, humility isn't thinking lowly of yourself, it's thinking rightly of yourself. It's thinking that really everything I have has first been given to me. That's what humility is. And humility doesn't need the center stage. Humility Humility is okay with sitting at the low seats. Second way, if we go back to Luke, this is even harder. This is harder. How can you tell you're going for earthly glory? Versus, number one is through how you view success. But the second way, this is a tough one. Oh, this is hard. It's how you view friendship. How you view relations with other people. How do you view that? That's verses 12 through 14. 
He also said to the man, this is verse 12, Luke 14, he also said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner, so he's now looking right at the ruler, the Pharisee, like Jesus is, he goes there. <laughs> he likes to make issues. He goes to the ruler and he said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Again, he's talking about temporal reward versus long-term reward. He's saying, first of all, in verse 12, how the earthly view friendship is they invite people because they will get something in return. It's called reciprocity. I give you something because I, I know you're going to owe me. It's kind of like Christmas cards. It's like Christmas cards. Ah, did you give Mrs. Smith a Christmas card? Because she gave us one. No, I didn't. Oh, I better give it to her because she gave us one. Oh, yeah, you're right. I better do that or she'll be mad. So exchange things for mutual benefit. You give to get. Quid pro quo. Cool Latin term. I was reading up in uh, the reason why probably the, the ruler didn't want the dropsy guy was because, number one, the poor will endanger your present social status. So don't, don't give to them because they have nothing to give back to you in honor for them. Number two, if you invite the poor guy, you'll waste your invitation because they can't return an invitation. They have nothing cool to invite you to. And thirdly, don't bring the poor dropsy guy or embarrassing people because if you invite them, they'll be embarrassed and humiliated because they know they'll never be able to pay you back. Is that how people feel around you? That they always have to pay you back? How many of your friendships are based on what people can do for you? Have you ever noticed, this is, I've mentioned this before, have you ever noticed foyer conversations at a church? They're very interesting. We talk to those who make us happy. We don't necessarily talk to those who we have to listen to their long stories or they're kind of new here or they're awkward. We don't talk to them. We talk to those who give us something in return. Usually it's felicity, how we feel after they talk to us, feeling good. But if you are an eternal person, look at verse 13. This is how eternal people invite. Verse 13, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. It's funny, Peter Marshall, Peter Marshall's up. He used to be the chaplain of the U.S. Senate. He's a guy from Scotland that used to be a preacher at Abraham Lincoln's church. He challenged his church to do this one Christmas where they gave Christmas dinners, invite four people that you would never talk to, that nobody ever talks to, and just invite them over for dinner. Don't expect anything in return. If they smell or they're kind of weird, invite them over. Have dinner for them for Christmas. Not the important people in the, in the community. Invite people that, honestly, nobody notices. And he challenged his whole church to do it. And quite a few did, and they came back, and they said it was amazing. 
Because the people they had over never cared if they vacuumed. Didn't care what kind of dishes the meals were served on and just were grateful. Eternal people are full of generosity. Generosity is this, I have been so blessed, I just want to, to give it out. Regardless if it's to somebody who's going to pay me back, like the eternal person, the earthly person, or even the, I give it to anybody. This is very, how could anybody live like this? How could anybody really do this? One thing, and a lot of people kind of get tired when I talk about my dad, but Boyd, Boyd doesn't mind, so I'm going to talk about my dad. At my dad's funeral, about five guys came up to me and my sons. One guy was blind. One guy had no hand. One guy was kind of socially awkward. And they all said, we want to meet the son of Don Weeks. And I said, who are you? Oh, my, your dad would have a Bible study with us. He'd pick us up and drive us to the breakfast house, and he would pay for us. I never, never told me that. It was funny because like, one guy with no hand went to shake my son's hand like that, and they kind of felt odd, you know. <laughs> but he thought it was hilarious. My dad called him something like Captain Hook or something because of that. I don't know. And the guy loved it. How could you actually live like this? Why should we live like this? Because we are alive right now simply because of Christ's generosity. That's it. What can we possibly give God in return for all he's given us? We love because he first loved us. Look at his example, verse 15. His example is really an illustration, a parable about himself. Verse 15, he says, When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who gets to eat bread. Like this guy is saying, All right, man, everybody's going to be blessed. Receive glory when they're in the kingdom of God. And so you've got to be careful what you say to Jesus. It's funny we want to hear Jesus talk. He Jesus is kind of harsh. He said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time, for the banquet, he sent a servant to say to those who have been invited, come for everything is now ready. So basically, he's going to use this idea of a marriage feast. So it's an invitation to a marriage feast. Celebration. Prepared in glory. Isaiah 25 actually says, we are all invited to the mountain of God. If you want to read what the mountain of God is going to be like, the marriage is going to be like, it's Isaiah 25, 6 to 9. It says there will be food of every kind. There will be actually aged wine there. It says that. I'm not making that up. But it says there will be everybody rejoicing. We will be wearing white robes. We will be blessed. But it gets sad. Verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses why they couldn't go to the wedding. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. I'm a busy man. I'm a busy man. I just bought a field. I need to work. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. This is meaning 
This isn't just mo- most people had one or two. This guy had five. This guy's rich. He's wealthy. I, I got to look at my investments, you know. I have to go examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife. Therefore, I cannot come. Just busy with life. I'm busy with life. Busy. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. The master of the house became angry. And he said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways, the hedges, and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Meaning, God is opening up his arms of mercy and grace to come. You're invited to the wedding banquet. But people have better things to do. I just don't want to take this Christianity so serious. Do you have better things to do? Are you kind of more important in the things of God? Like you really are, you are an important person. You're a busy person. Have you ever been with somebody when they're with you? They, you know, you have an appointment with them, but they're always checking their calendar. It's just got more to do than you've ever had to do. Do you ever meet people when they have kids? Like I have four kids, but I've met some people with four kids. You just don't know what it's like to have four kids. I mean, I have a, I have a hard life. You're, I guess I don't. I, I don't. Oh, I, I have vacations to go. I'm just busy. And so what Jesus is saying, God wants you to learn of him, to receive his mercy, to rest in him. But people snub the invitation because they're just so important. I am, that's good, as, uh, as Marx would say, that opium for the masses is fine for you, but I'm important. And when you have that attitude, you are snubbing the host. And when you snub the host, ooh, does he get angry. He gets angry. Why does he get angry? Because snubbing somebody is an expression of how you view them. It's a statement of worth, and you mean nothing to me. So God prepares the greatest feast, and people say, I don't want it. What that means is you and your kingdom mean nothing to me. So, all right. He says, all right, I I'm anxious to show this, so I'm going to give it to anybody. And really, the people that receive it are the ones that understand how desperate they are. And then when you get a taste of it, you realize glory is everything it has been basically promoted to be. It's amazing. And if you've seen glory, you know what I'm talking about. And the way you can tell that you understand glory is the final thing you're willing to pay the cost for it. Because everything costs something. As one person said, what means the most to you, you pay the most for. And the most important, expensive thing is glory. And it costs a lot to have God's glory in you and shine in you and to enjoy it even now. It costs a lot. The cost is verse 25 and 26. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Oh, here's what he's saying. You really want his glory in your life? I really do. Then you have to begin to start hating what you once loved. What? 
I have to hate my mom and dad? I mean, just hate them? It's not, the idea isn't I just hate them to hate them. It's an issue of distance. You distance yourself and disavow those things you once thought brought you glory. It's when he's talking about your mom, your dad, he's talking about family status. I'm part of this family. This family identifies me. It's interesting. Some of you might get mad at me, but I was Roman Catholic because I was Polish. Because I'm Polish, I'm always going to be Roman Catholic. And a lot of people are Roman Catholic because of their heritage. Not because of what they believe, but because of their family. Is Roman Catholicism bad? I'm not talking necessarily. When you make that religion you rather than a relationship, absolutely it's bad. Christ wants you. He wants you. Not an identity you think you are. Listen to this. This is an amazing statement. It says, um, Bearing the cross in this passage is used as a metaphor of discipleship. Indeed, as a requirement for one's identity as a disciple. Such persons would live as though they were condemned to death by crucifixion, oblivious to the pursuit of noble status. So I die to those things that once brought me glory. That's what he means. Finding no interest in securing one's future via securing obligations from others or by stockpiling possessions, free to identify with Jesus and his dishonorable suffering. Importantly, both statements concerning conditions of discipleship are addressed to whoever, reminded invitations, open ones. So in other words, what he's saying is when I earthly glory people look for success by promoting themselves, he's saying die to that, stop doing that. Earthly people have friendships by reciprocity, die to that. Stop having friendships based on what people give it back to you and start living the other way. You've got to die to those things. You've got to hate those things. That's hard. That's really hard. The second thing, the second cost is 28 and 29. Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. This is the idea that there will be humiliation for those who fail to finish. In other words, this issue of glory having his kingdom, having his life in you, shining out from you, is a big deal. God isn't messing around. It's not something I'm just choosing to do today. Tomorrow, ah, if I have something better, I'll do that. It's not the best available option. It is the best thing for you. It's not taking his invitation seriously. I, I was going to go to this, but I don't know if I have enough time. Isaiah is a book of invitations. The first chapter, come, let us reason together, though your sins are scarlet, they can be white as snow. Isaiah 25, come to the mountain of God. That's what we just talked about. Isaiah 55, come, buy, buy food and drink without no cost. Three huge invitations, but by the time you get to chapter 56, all those invitations are refused. And so then what he does is he says, all right, gather to me around all the beasts of the field to devour you. You don't want my... You don't want my invitation, so all of you lazy watchmen who are getting drunk, that's what he says, who are getting drunk and just say, I'm seeking 
just joy. Tomorrow's going to be a lot better than today. You're going to be devoured and destroyed. That's harsh because glory is a big deal. It's everything. The third thing is 31 to 33. A lot of people take this to be kind of the same thing as 28 to 30, but listen to what he says. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. If not, while the other is yet great way off, he sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you does not renounce all that he have cannot be my disciple. This is different than counting the costs and failing. This is recognizing I'm going to fail, so I surrender. I quit striving. The idea is here's, I've got 10,000, you have 20,000, oh, you're going to kill me. In Deuteronomy 17, if I send out a delegation of peace and accept it, I am taken in by the new nation. So in other words, I recognize that God is coming. He's coming. He's holy. He's powerful. I can't stand up to him, so do I fight him with my little fists of glory? I don't need you, or do I say, God, I have nothing, I'm undone, and I take his peace offer. Have you ever read his peace offer? It's the greatest peace offer ever. It's Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only so, but we, we have been given access into this land in which we now stand. Not only that, but... We learn that suffering brings perseverance and perseverance, experience and experience, hope. And hope makes us not ashamed. And then the love of God is shed upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's given to us. And we are saved by wrath. So when I come to his, I accept his peace treaty. I'm given everything. When I surrender and die to me and my need to strive and be the best, and I give to him, he gives me everything. He gives me honor. Look, go back and study that. Study Deuteronomy 17, terms of war, and when you accept peace, what you get. That's the cost of having glory. There's also a cost of rejecting glory or going after earthly glory. There's a cost. I will put it like this. There's a cost for settling on being secure in the earthly sense. There's a cost. The cost for wanting money and just settling on that or fame or a huge house on a cabin or popularity. When you just go for that, you're settling. And there's a cost for settling, and the cost is 33, actually 34 and 35. And here's how he puts it. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile, so it will be thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. So that's like Jesus' last statement on everything that went before. And so what he's using, he's using the old, sounds like he's talking about Sermon on the Mount. No, what he's saying is salt has a purpose. What is salt's purpose? Salt's purpose is to make things savory and to preserve things. If you aren't doing what you've been designed to do, you will be thrown out in the manure pile hugely scary what have we been designed to do why did god make us to display 
His beauty, to be conformed in the likeness of His Son. We were made for reflective glory. That's how we've been designed. We haven't been designed for our own glory. So when we just strive after earthly glory, we are basically denying the purpose for which we've been made to live forever with God. If that's the case, if that's the case, we are going to be destroyed. I was thinking about two of the major deaths this last weekend. Florence Henderson, Marcia, Mrs. Brady, and Fidel Castro. I'll bet you both, like when you look at Marcia Brady, she's the Brady Bunch queen on a sitcom that didn't mean much. Probably many of you remember those, like, Marcia, Marcia, Marcia. Or when they're building the stack, a deck of cards, and the dangling Jans things dangling. If you've ever seen Brady Bunch, you know what I mean. I grew up on it. I thought I was Bobby Brady for years. I'd wear those same striped shirts. But it's silly. It's silly. It's sort of, you could say, her life, it's ended. What did she live for? Sitcoms. Fidel Castro, however, he was of import. He brought revolution to a peasant society to make all men equal, bring communist and atheistic ideals. At least he had weightiness. But he didn't believe in God. They're both dead. Their memory will still be there, but it will be history book memory. Where are they now? We have another lady named Edna Johnson. Edna Johnson went to this church. She's one of the first ladies that ever told me about Kent City Baptist. I met her up at Lake Ann. I was at this campfire at Lake Ann and sitting across from this lady, Ted and Edna Johnson. And they said, I said, where are you from? Kent City Baptist. I said, Kent, where's that? You've never heard of Kent City? No, 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 nope. But in a way, now her name is, people are going to say in heaven, do you know Edna Johnson? She is displaying the glory of Christ right now. What's more important? Is it more important to be filled at Fidel Castro having iron rule and having everybody fear you and I am going to, as the New York Times, I'm going to fight against the influence of America for 50 years and he did it. Yeah, he did it on the killing people and denying God. My point is this, like we're kind of talking around over like in a living room or a coffee shop. We have been made for glory. It's how we've it's who we are. We've been designed for it. That's why we want, that's why we look in the mirror every morning. As Tony Evans said, every morning women put on their glory. Mm-mm, they're putting on their glory. Uh, we all do. We all do. Guys do. They put on Carhartts. That's their glory. But glory, what kind of glory do you want? I'm serious. How do you really consider your friends? Some of you don't want to have anything to do with people because they have nothing to give you, so you're going to be a jerk to everybody because they have nothing to give you in return. That's, a, that's, that's a re reciprocity gone bad, but it's still reciprocity. Some of you are hermits because I don't like people. That's reciprocity. Some of you, however, will do anything for people. That's a sign real glory is in you. What are you? Who are you? 